Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Psychology and New Books in Neuroscience. These are podcast channels with the New Books Network. I'm Dr. John Griffiths from CAMH and the University of Toronto. I'm co-host to this channel with Chris Harris and Joseph Friedman. Today I'm speaking with Rodrigo Quian Quiroga. Dr. Quiroga is the director of the Center for Systems Neuroscience at the University of, Le- of Leicester. He's a highly celebrated neuroscientist for his work on the neurobiology of memory and conceptual representation, and in particular for his discovery of the so-called concept cells, which are more familiar to many scientists and laypeople as Jennifer Aniston neurons. In addition to a great many peer-reviewed academic papers, Rodrigo is also the author of three popular books, Borges and Memory in 2011, The Forgetting Machine in 2017, and most recently, neuroscience fiction in 2020, where he goes through the premises of 10 seminal science fiction movies from both a scientific and a philosophical perspective, and discusses how modern neuroscience is making many of these outlandish ideas closer and closer to reality. And this book is going to be the focus of our discussion today. So Rodrigo, hello. Hi, nice to meet you. Yes, excellent. So before we get into your new book, what I'd like to do first is set the scene a little bit in terms of your own personal and professional biography. And I want to just preface this by saying I actually first came across your work in the early to mid 2000s with a number of technical papers that you had on various aspects of neural signal processing, like synchronization, wavelet analysis, multivariate analysis, which I was looking at in the context of EEG and MEG data analysis. But this is, I think this is interesting because Outside of the field, you're well known for the, this work in concept cells and in memory, but within neuroscience, you've also done a lot of basically fundamental technical work on analysis and signal processing. So I wanted to ask you to just kind of give us your, your personal and professional bio up to this point, but also give us a little bit of like your thought on, on where you feel you sit within the discipline. Yeah, that that's what you mentioned. It's kind of like from a previous life. So I I studied physics. I mean, in my country in Argentina, and then I I did a PhD in applied math in in Germany, and was basically in signal processing. So I did a lot of stuff with wavelets and so on, and that was my PhD basically. And then I did a first postdoc in also in Germany, in dynamical systems and statistical mechanics, and again a lot of I don't know, synchronization, signal processing, um, modeling, uh, but more of dynamical systems, no, like theoretical things. But I always was somehow touching into or get, getting into the brain, analyzing some EEG signals and trying to find applications to, to some brain signals because I, I was always fascinated by, by the brain. And then I moved to Caltech, I mean, to do my, to do a second postdoc. And then I started I would say afresh with neural recordings. That was completely new to me. 
And the moment I started, I realized, oh, actually, I know a couple of tricks that may do a good job, I mean, to analyze this type of signals. And I came up with what is called a spike sorting algorithm. And a spike sorting, what it does is, if you get the signal from recordings from an electrode inside an animal's head, for example, you, you see the activity of many neurons together. And a spike sorting algorithm, what we'll do is we'll separate which action potential corresponds to which neuron. So it's similar to what in mathematics we call the cocktail party problem. So it's like if you put a microphone in a cocktail party and you hear the chatting of many people, I mean, somebody has a job to disentangle who is who, I mean, who is saying what. And basically, I, I use some tricks from physics and math to come up with, with an algorithm to do what I thought it could be a better job in, in separating these signals. And suddenly I could see some neurons that people couldn't see before, and that led to the discovery of these neurons that you mentioned, these concept cells or Jennifer Aniston neurons. And that was, yeah, I mean, when I moved to Caltech, I mean, to start working with this type of data, that was already quite quite a big change in my career. But the moment I discovered these neurons, I kind of like left my math and physics and signal processing background a little bit aside and focused completely on, on on the issue of understanding what do these neurons do, how they are involved forming memories, and yeah, and trying to understand further. I mean, what what are these neurons doing in our brain? Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so I think because it's it, it comes up, it's really a, a a central motif in the book. The the work you were just describing, in addition to a, a much kind of broader perspective on neuroscience that you you outline. We'll we'll come back to the Jennifer Anderson cells and the concept cells a little bit more um, later in the conversation. So um, maybe we'll we'll revisit that in some detail. Uh, but mm-hmm. now let's just get into the first the outline and then the details of the book. So the book is called Neuroscience Fiction, and it has a rather epically long subtitle. It's from 2001: A Space Odyssey to Inception how neuroscience is transforming sci-fi into reality while challenging our beliefs about the mind, machines, and what makes us human. So I just have a, a, a slightly silly question to ask first. Was this, was this your idea, the huge subtitle? Was that a, a, an editor's edition? Of course not. My idea was the publisher say, well, let's put a subtitle that can catch yeah. as many people as possible. So let's put everything together. So my book, I mean, this is a translation. I, I wrote the book in Spanish and in Spanish oh. it's just called Neurociencia Ficción, Neuroscience Fiction. And the publisher in, in the Spanish edition said how, I think it was how science fiction advanced science or, or, or uh, foretells, foretold science. When, yeah, the publishers of, of the English version, I mean, went more into the philosophical things and so on, but it's fine. I mean, it's, it's okay. I, I think it's all, all, I mean, it's true. All, all these topics are there in the book. I think it's quite a long subtitle. I'll agree with you, but the idea of the book is, is there is in the subtitle is to dwell really into philosophical discussions, to make a link between science fiction and science, real science. And yeah, and to start thinking about these long astounding issues. And there's one question that is recurrent in all the chapters, which is the idea of what makes us human, which is, I mean, also in the subtitle. Right, right. Um, and yeah, I, I, I agree, with, despite my, my little joke. I mean, the, the subtitle is, is very nicely descriptive and, and definitely brings you in. 
And uh, one of the things I was reading, I was thinking when I was when I was going through it, and and also you mentioned kind of explicitly in the epilogue, is that it's um, it's a very kind of consistently you're you're, you're addressing a lot of big ideas um, throughout the uh, maybe from the history of ideas going back thousands of years. Um, in addition to these core scientific topics, and it's kind of like for me, it was a bit like a 21st century Sophie's World. I don't know if yeah. you you've oh, that, that, that book. That's the biggest compliment you can do to me. I, I'm so happy that's that. Right. You said. Yeah, that's that's great. It's great to hear that. I love this book, and it's a little bit yeah. What was it was a little bit what what, what was I trying to to achieve? Yeah, it's great to hear that. Good. Good. Um, so for the listeners, I, I thought I would, because I think it's going to be very informative, just go through the the chapter titles, because the chapter titles actually um, describe the the films that are being kind of reflected on. And then we won't go into every single chapter in full detail, but we'll touch on maybe some of the themes that spread across them. But I'll just, just going through the chapter list now. So there's 10 chapters. Number one, 2001 a space odyssey on machine intelligence number two blade runner can androids feel number three planet of the apes animal consciousness Four, the matrix the illusion of reality five until the end of the world reading the mind six minority report free will seven robocop uh, cyborgs and identity eight inception dream construction nine Total Recall, Memory Manipulation and Implantation, and 10, Open Your Eyes or Vanilla Sky on Immortality. Um, and in addition to, so that, that gives an idea of the kind of nominal structure of the, of the book in terms of the chapters. But as I was saying, the, the, there's a number of undercurrents that really span multiple chapters and you revisit several times and kind of develop in a, in a, in a nice way. Um, but I, I wanted to ask just in terms of that, those 10 chapters. So were you, did you have a lot of back and forth on, on what you ended up settling on for the, the kind of primary film topics? Was that something that you were losing sleep over choosing the selection? No, I mean, it started with let, let's make like the list of my favorite science fiction movies, which is not the list of chapters you see, because then I have to fine tune it. Because there are movies that I love and they are not there because of some reason. And there are movies that I'm not so, so such a big fan of that they are there, but it's because they really trigger a, a very interesting discussion. So an example is, I mean, a movie that I don't like that much is Robocop. I mean, I don't find, I mean, I wouldn't put Robocop together with 2001. 2001 is a masterpiece and it, it sparks so many discussions and it's, it's a no-brainer to start with 2001. But Robocop, I mean, I was doubting a lot because I want, I prefer to put Terminator. But Terminator doesn't really bring the topic I wanted to discuss. And Robocop brings exactly up front the discussion that I wanted to have, which is about identity. So if you are a cyborg and you get all your, you start getting your parts replaced, I mean, parts of your body replaced, who are you? I mean, are you losing your identity or you are still you? So, and the big question, which is a philosophical question that goes back to John Locke, is, which is the discussion of this chapter, is what makes us be ourselves and that we continue to be the same person. And I think in Robocop, this discussion is, is very explicit, it's very obvious. From my preference, I would have preferred to have a chapter on Terminator 
but Terminator is not a cyborg. Terminator is a machine. So there's no discussion about identity. So it was a bit of, of a mix. So I started with my, my list of favorite movies, which many of them are there. But then I have to fine tune because some movies uh, brought about some much more interesting discussions than other. And the example is Robocop versus Terminator, for example. Right. Very good. Very good. So maybe, I mean, we, you jumped, we jumped into Robocop and that actually, I thought we could open up with the primary uh, a shared topic of the first two to three chapters, which is uh, machine intelligence and um, artificial minds, I guess. But that's also there to some extent in chapter seven. So what in that general kind of super, super group of, um, of, you know, ideas and concepts has received some significant developments from neuroscience recently to your mind? Oh, well, the whole thing, like artificial intelligence is living its, its, its glorious years now. I mean, uh, since 2012, 13, I mean, there w- was a huge, huge revival of artificial intelligence. And that comes from a very specific finding by by Hinton and, and two of his students that suddenly he showed he he developed an algorithm that he can implement it in in the graphic graphic processing cards of a computer, therefore the processing power was very high and he can outperform any other algorithm for recognizing images. So and he was a huge boost. I mean it was a revolution and then suddenly everybody started using this type of networks that Hinton was rediscovering because the idea of these networks that Hinton used, so the idea of the revolution actually goes back to the 80s. But the computer power is is so demanding to implement these networks, which are called deep neural networks, that they weren't really useful in the 80s because you couldn't really do it. But once you have access to supercomputers and to the graphic cards of, of, well, not supercomputers, but like, like, very, very good computers and you start using the graphic processors, I mean, suddenly you can start using these networks and that made a huge difference. Now, I see that as a revival of the big debate we had at the turn of the millennium with Deep Blue and Kasparov, because suddenly there's a supercomputer that can beat a chess master, actually seen by many as as like the prototype of, of, of the of the human intelligence, no? Like Gary Kasparov. And suddenly the blue bit, bit Kasparov. And then I, I saw this a revival because um, new algorithms using this type of a structure of deep neural networks, I mean, can beat the master at Go, the Chinese game. And Go is much, much harder. It's a much bigger challenge compared to chess. I mean, chess compared to Go is peanuts. I mean, my... my I mean, any tablet can play chess better than than Deep Blue and than most players in the world right now. But Go is a different story because in Go there are so many much uh, so many options that it's very hard to come up with an algorithm that, that that can play Go. However, these guys in London developed AlphaGo, and and they could be like the the best player of Go in in the world. I mean, in 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 South Korea, and that that brought the discussion again is well are, are we being surpassed by by machines i mean so what i mean what is left for us i mean humans i mean maybe what we are inventing is taking over no i mean we're not the dominant species in this planet anymore 
or that we know of anymore, maybe the dominant species would be our, our own invention. And it's a very interesting discussion, and it's already in 2001, it's already in Blade Runner, it's in, it's in many science fiction movies, like HAL 9000 in 2001 is as intelligent as a human and suddenly has human feelings and so on. So this brings the two biggest challenges, I think, in artificial intelligence, which is, one, can an artificial intelligence be sentient? Can it be conscious? And the second challenge is what is called general intelligence. So can you have um, some neural network that is trained to recognize faces to start doing some other stuff, like recognize writings or to translate things from Chinese to English and so on? And if you start digging into the literature, these questions are still unresolved. So it's, it's a double-edged coin, no? because on, on, on the double-edged knife, because on the one hand, you see the amazing things that artificial intelligence can do our, nowadays, which is really striking. And it feels like it's science fiction, but it's actually science. I mean, and actually an algorithm right now can recognize faces better than you and me. But as long as you show the faces in a particular way, if you start playing with the faces, if you start occluding the face, if you start putting glasses and so on, then it's a different story. So, I mean, we are somehow astonished by advances in artificial intelligence. But on the other hand, these neural networks that are still in their childhood to achieve general intelligence, which is what any two-year-old baby can do already. And they're still... Not, we have no clue how to make a machine conscious, aware of itself. So it's a nice kind of like contrast between how we are advancing in some very specific applications, but we're still, I mean, clueless about the biggest challenges in the field. So this this is nice. And, and this is something that I thought that your um, area of study and, and probably some of the insight that you bring to it is very let's say, an on vogue and certainly an important topic in um, at this intersection between AI or machine learning or machine intelligence and neuroscience, which is what is there about hierarchical, um, hierarchical networks and hierarchical neural systems that have a, a, a brain-like organization that brings out smart stuff high up the hierarchy. So I'm thinking in particular in the human brain, um, concept, as I say, smart things, but particularly smart things in terms of semantic memory and conceptual structures start occurring high up in the visual system, particularly in the ventral part of the visual system and the medial temporal lobe and getting towards the hippocampus where, where you spend most of your time working. So, and, and in, um, some say, for, for example, the um, computational cognitive neuroscience conference that started a few years ago, these ideas of can we use insights from deep learning to understand the organization of the ventral, medial, temporal memory system, you know, so there's a kind of convergence between some of the potentially where the, the, the the breakthroughs or the the improvements are coming from 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 machine learning and your particular area of neuroscience. So is that is that something that you you've reflected on? You certainly talk about it in yeah. the book. Yeah, I, I reflect a lot about this, and to put it very bold and just 
just to get, I mean, people hearing that more interesting, I mean, more, more interested, I, to put it bluntly, I think sometimes the field goes exactly in the wrong direction. So, and that's not my own view. That's, that's what Marvin Minsky was saying until the day he died. Marvin Minsky is like the grandfather of artificial intelligence in the 60s. I mean, he's the biggest, biggest figure in, I mean, he has been the biggest figure in artificial intelligence since decades. And I think until the day he died, he kept on saying, like, guys, we're, we're missing it. I mean, because we're still not tackling the biggest challenge, which is general intelligence. How you can make a computer develop something like common sense, be able to create analogies, to generalize, and these type of things. And we're very good at creating software algorithms that are amazing at doing very specific tasks, and you train them to do a task, but the key problem is how you get this algorithm doing a task they have not been trained to do. And that's, that's the biggest challenge. And I think for that, the neurons I discover may have something to do because these are neurons, we, these are neurons that represent abstractions. And I think to be able to represent abstraction, to be able to represent the meaning of things, the touch of details, the touch of very specific context, is a key step in order to be able to generalize, to transfer knowledge from one context to the other. So if you have a representation that is explicit at the single neuron levels that represent concepts irrespective of any particular context or any particular details, which is exactly what we find in humans, well, that's the best, say, neural representation you can have in order to do what we are very good at doing, which is making these generalizations, these transfer of knowledge and so on. And I think people doing artificial intelligence, they are still not looking at that seriously. And maybe because it's still very recent, I mean, very recent data, very recent discovery. But my feeling is the moment they will start looking more into that, there might be some new insights. And we may end up learning that maybe maybe we should go in a different direction and it, it can be a direction that it gets closer to tackle the issue of general intelligence. And one thing that I say in the book is that the two challenges, I think they're not maybe too far from each other. I think the moment you start addressing the issue of general intelligence, you may at the same time be addressing the issue of consciousness of machines because the moment you are able to transfer knowledge in different situations, you start to have an understanding of these concepts that you are transferring. So you start being somehow aware of these things. So it is somehow related to consciousness as well. Right, right. And the, the, you actually say later on, I mean, so the chapter three is the, the one that's on Planet of the Apes and the role of language and the role of, of the, the, uh, animal minds and, and potentially consciousness in animals as well. But you also say later on in uh, chapter eight, something that I thought was a kind of fascinating and slightly provocative statement that the, uh, quoting the existence of concept cells is probably the key difference between human and primate brains. Uh, so, so could you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, I think you had some, some strong points to make on yeah. that. So um, since last year, I'm writing a few papers, making this point more and more explicit. So I'm becoming more controversial as a scientist, but I think it's, it's fun. So let me start this way. Um, 
clearly, clearly, we are way much more intelligent, intelligent than a chimpanzee. And you will say, oh, no, come on, chimpanzees are very intelligent. I agree. They are very, very clever. They can use tools. They can fabricate their own tools, like to fish termites or to, uh, to crack nuts and so on. They, they have some social, some social I mean, uh, behaviors. They can hunt in, in, in groups. So chimpanzees are very, very clever, but they don't solve integrals. They don't think about the origins of the universe in the Big Bang. They, they don't do all the repertoire of amazing things that, that we do. Now, it is very well described. I mean, people have described the key differences between ape behavior and human behavior. We do many more things compared to ape, and I think there's no doubt about that. Well, the question is why? Because if you start thinking about it, and I think now as a physicist, I mean, which is my, my first background, well, I mean, I, I don't want to stop at the level of explanation of the mind. You say, oh, there's a mind and you have a theory of mind and you have language and so on. And you say, well, but why? I mean, the brain of a chimpanzee is not the brain of an ant. The brain of a chimpanzee is just one third of our brain. So it's not that small. I mean, we're just, our brain is three times larger, not 100 times larger than the one of a chimpanzee. And it's not number of neurons, clearly. So basically, our neurons are doing something different compared to what the neurons in the chimpanzee are doing. And this is what brings about language and theory of mind or whatever, although chimpanzees, they do have some degree of theory of mind. But the ability of con- construct future, do Im- imagination, high-level creativity, and so on. So there's something in the way our neurons are coding things, processing information, however you want to call it, that is radically different because we are way much more intelligent than chimpanzees. And I think so far the only big difference I know of is these concept cells because people cannot find them in, in other species. They are not in rats and they are not there in macaque monkeys, which is, I mean... What they have tried to to look at, and I don't know of any other big difference. And actually, it makes sense because if you don't have an explicit representation of concepts, if other if any any other animal doesn't have an explicit representation of concepts, if everything that you store is related to some details and to some context and so on, well, it's much harder to move, to make this high level associations of this transfer of knowledge we do effortlessly. So it would make sense that if it is really the case, as it seems to be up to now, that other animals do not have concept cells, that might be a key difference. Because if you do have concept cells, neurons that represent abstractions, well, it's very easy to do these things we are unique in doing, like these constructions of realities, imaginations, analogies, inferences, and so on. So it is a bit speculative still, but I mean, it's something I'm, I decided to, to make a bet. I mean, I, I guess people will not find this type of neurons in, in other species. They have tried so far. I mean, not as much as I, 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 I wish, but hopefully many more will try. And maybe we start understanding more and more what is the difference at the neural level of what makes human intelligence. And do you, do you see this as a really a neuronal property or is it really the the hierarchy of the the higher part of the conceptual system and the visual system and other sensory systems maybe you have a few addition like inserted areas with slightly different connectivity 
Do you think? Do you think about this from a connectivity or a hierarchy perspective, or I don't, an think, I, don't an, I don't think it's an anatomical difference because the brain of a, of an ape is, in terms of structures and connectivity, is not that far from our brain. I mean, we're, we're not that different. So, and I don't think there are specific neurons that are different. I don't think we have neurons that they are morphologically or physiologically different compared to other species. We have more or less the same neurons, but I think. The circuits that neurons create in our brain, they are different than the circuits that they create in, in other species. The circuits in the sense that although you have the same anatomy, the same type of connections and so on, the same type of neurons, the, the network is doing something different. It's encoding things in a different way. And my speculation, and I speculate because I have no evidence for saying that, but my speculation is that this difference start arising when we started using language. So I think it's maybe 100,000 years of evolution where we have evolved with the use of language. And by using language, we were reinforcing thinking of in terms of abstractions because every noun or every verb is an abstraction on itself. And this somehow was creating an explicit representation of concepts, which is what we see in humans and you don't see in other species. So... Sticking with and and kind of following on from the those initial those initial chapters in the book into the next few, which we have these the the central topics I think that come back and back and back again in the book are really machine intelligence, consciousness, free will, memory, identity, and dreaming. So if we move on from machine intelligence to consciousness now um you know this is this is a big topic in 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 neuroscience and also in kind of general science discussions but within within that discussion space and the kind of candidate frameworks and theories for thinking about consciousness as a biological phenomenon do you feel yourself uh gravitating to want toward one or other perspective or one other set of theories? Well, uh, I, I agree. I think consciousness is a biological phenomena. And I may disagree with many of my colleagues. I I don't think we're that far to understand it, actually. Um, there's something that people call the heart problem, and that's more like a philosophical perspective. It's something we will never understand. But I don't see it as, as such a heart problem. I think the heart problem is, I mean, we have other heart problems which are much harder than consciousness these days. And I just take a little detour, I mean, but this is what I discussed in the epilogue. I think philosophy is changing now. I mean, I'm not talking about the last 50 years or so. Philosophy is changing right now, in these years, as we speak. I mean, there's a 21st century philosophy that I think is very, very different than philosophy in the 20th century and very different to what people have, I mean, been thinking about, I mean, centuries before that. Um so I think in terms of consciousness, I, I, my starting point is taking Dan Dennett's position, which is we shouldn't try to explain the construction, which is our feeling of being conscious. We should try to explain the, the biological process. So the way I see it is, for example, if, if you take vision, you say, oh, I'm, I'm seeing everything that is in front of me. I'm sitting now in my desk talking, talking to you and I can see my office. And if I try to explain vision, and if I try to explain this feeling of seeing my office, 
It's very hard, but basically what the brain is doing is just taking some, I mean, taking very little pieces of information because it's not that much what I can see at the same time. I mean, because we foveate, we look at about one degree visual angle in focus and the rest is all blurred. But we somehow have this feeling that we're seeing everything in focus at the same time, all what we can see in front of us. And this is the construction of the brain. The same with memory. We believe we can remember our past as if we play a movie. So, but actually it's very little what we remember. And however, we create this construction, which is the construction of our story. And it's the same with consciousness. I think consciousness is based on bits of information and we get this feeling that we call qualia. And qualia is, for example, I, I put the example of, 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 of a particular plant like jasmine because my, my mom loves jasmine and my, my grandmother used to love jasmines and so on. And then this feeling, this qualia that I have when I smell a jasmine uh, flower and you say, well, no, come on, it's not just processing chemicals in the brain and, and getting some neurons reacting. I mean, jasmine means a lot to me and I feel the jasmine. Well, but feeling the jasmine is recognizing that is the jasmine smell, then triggering the memory of my grandma by the jasmine tree in, in her big house and my mom's jasmine plant, I mean, in, 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 my, in, in the other house and the emotions of how much I love jasmine or I don't know, many different things of how a jasmine tree looks like. So these co-activations of things related to jasmine, this is actually what qualia is. And then this feeling of, Jasmine, well, it's actually construction around these bits of information. So I see consciousness this way. I mean, I, I don't see it as the biggest, I mean, as the biggest challenge in philosophy anymore. I think, well, I mean, there are many, many details we have to sort out. There are many things I still don't understand. I mean, that puzzle me, but I don't think it's, it's the big puzzle it was until maybe like 10, 20 years ago. Good, good. And, uh, Sticking with the the consciousness kind of theme, but maybe just skipping over to the the dream section. So in the in the later parts of the book, or in chapter seven and thereabouts, chapter eight, there's you kind of jam on on these ideas of of inception, and also it has a, a resonances of the of the ideas in the Matrix, and also in in Borges, which which you wrote about. Actually, maybe you could spell out the the um, the the Borges short story that you use within chapter seven is um, it's a very powerful little story about about dreaming. The one of of the butterfly and yeah. I mean there are many. I mean Borges Borges wrote a lot about dreaming. Uh, I think Borges quotes a very old Chinese story of a guy dreaming he was a butterfly and then he woke when he woke up he didn't know if he was dreaming of being a butterfly. Or if he was a butterfly dreaming, he was a man dreaming about the butterfly. I think it was maybe it was this story the one you you referred to. But I mean, Borges played a lot with with dreams and been been dreaming and and, and being awake in in many of his stories. So in in the in that chapter, you you cover you cover some of the history, some of the the, the philosophy history and the literary history in terms of Borges, and then um, the the neuroscience in terms of dreaming and, and REM sleep, which has a pretty interesting philosophical uh, historical trajectory in itself coming kind of initially perhaps from Freud and then onto some of the, the breakthroughs with, 
the human electrophysiology and 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 REM sleep physiology in in the fifties and and then onwards. Um, and then another part of that picture is the role of sleep in in memory consolidation, and this kind of comes back to the the um, hippocampal memory system and some of the things that you've been that we've talked about already in terms of memory representations. So, could you expand a little bit there and where where the science, what's coming through, well, both like the classic the classic science, let's say, but also what's coming through most recently um, in connecting some of these these components of memory and, and dreaming and, and maybe consciousness as well? Okay, so that, that's a big distinction we have to make. I think we know a lot about sleep and the role of sleep in, in memory consolidation, and there's no doubt about that. I think there's, there's very clear evidence that sleep contributes a lot to memory consolidation. So you need to sleep to somehow rehearse your memories and and, and and get them firm in, in, in your brain. And there's some very nice theories of why is that and how this could happen. But what really puzzled me and what I, f- I found most fascinating is that I started to investigate more and more and more, and it seems that we still know nothing about dreams. And this is what Freud wondered about. I mean, this is what, not just Freud, I mean, like, this is what all Greeks wonder about. I mean, why, why do we dream? I mean, in ancient times, they saw that dreams are premonitions that the gods put into your head to to tell you something. I mean, that they will use your dreams to tell you what to do or what they, they would like you to do. And there are many stories, many, many, many nice, nice stories like that. But what I realized reading the literature is that it's still very, very little, close to nothing, what we knew about dreaming. What is the function of our dreams? And we have these constructions that sometimes we remember when we wake up. And we still don't even know if they have a function at all. Some people say that these are epiphenomena, that it's just like a byproduct of having some brain activations, that they have absolutely no function at all, dreaming. Different from sleeping. I mean, and actually most of the consolidation process happens when actually we, when we do not dream. And so in periods where, I mean, like when, when we're not dreaming. So consolidation is not typically happening in REM. It happens in the non-REM uh, sleep stages. And I, I'm a specu- I mean, I speculated a bit and I follow, I, I like, I mean, there are a couple of people, I mean, very well-known sleep researchers that put forward some theories, although the evidence is still a bit scarce. I mean, there's no uncontroversial evidence, but I like the idea of, of dreaming maybe as as um, kind of like putting things into context. And I found the idea very beautiful. And I'm not sure if they will say exactly what I will say, but that's my interpretation of it. Or maybe I'm, I'm adding a couple of twists to, to what they're saying. But my, my, my view is that when, when we are awake, we are kind of like um, constrained by reality. I mean, I cannot see myself flying because I cannot fly. I mean, there's, there's, there are physical laws that I'm aware of that, I mean, they don't let me fly. But when you are uh, dreaming, I mean, you are detached from sensory, I mean, sensory um, stimulation. I mean, you, you are not, I mean, you're not processing what you, I mean, what you are seeing as when you are awake. And I think this kind of like frees up the type of associations and the type of things you can do with information you are rehearsing again so you rehearse things you have lived during the day um, 
not only, but I mean, we tend to do a lot. We tend to dream about things that we experience during the day. And then what happens during sleep and particularly during dreaming is that these experiences you can put in very different contexts. I mean, uh, you can be in India, you can be in Africa, you can be flying, you can be underwater and you can stay underwater because you don't need to breathe anymore and because you are you're just dreaming. And I seen this exercise of trying the new information into very different contexts. It's kind of like probing things and 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 then making disparate connections that you will not come up when you are awake. And I like this as as a very I mean I think this is a very nice interpretation of what is the potential role of of dreaming. But I think there's no much evidence. I mean the honest answer, which I found it fascinating is that we still don't know much. Yeah, I, I agree. I, it definitely caught my attention in, in that chapter. The, you, you actually you, you describe it as a, a kind of two stages, right? They have slow wave sleep uh, or non-dreaming sleep where you're kind of organizing the information that you've you know, picked up during the course of the day and then and then dreaming comes as a second stage to that, which is putting those those new memories in context, as you described it. Um, and that couples really nicely, I think, to the more physiological um, perspective on dreaming, which is the synaptic homeostasis model, which I'm sure you know about. The the kind of motif for that is that um, sleep sleep is the price you pay for synaptic plasticity. Or, or more, more generally, sleep is the price you pay for for the ability, the ability to learn. Yeah, which I think is a very powerful idea. So, uh, taking taking a step back, we had um, we had uh, machine intelligence, consciousness, dreaming. There also, so in chapter four, you you're talking about the the matrix and. And then on chapter five, you're talking about mind reading. And I thought the 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 mind reading, well, two things in chapter five that I thought were, were really interesting. One is the, the I actually hadn't heard of the film for a start um, until the end of the work, the earth, which is a, uh, is it Vim Vendors? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's on my, yeah. Until the, yeah. And um, that's, it's on my, my watch list now. But you you elaborate in that chapter on some ideas around mind reading, and and you also touch on uh, Adrian Owen's work, which is using functional localization with coma patients, which is also you know interestingly intersecting with your own work because it's it's uh, well it, it, it's in the back part of the brain, let's say um, that it, it's you know related to concept representation and memory, but a little bit more in terms of um, functional localization, but maybe you could elaborate a bit on on that line of work and and how you kind of saw that connecting to the theme of that film. Well, it's um, well the idea of of, of of mind reading in in until the end of the world is like I mean I, I don't want to tell the, the the plot of the movie because I will ruin it. But if you read the book, you know a, lot, a bit about it. But the idea is can can you record brain signals and and try to decode, that's a technical term, try to figure out what the patient is thinking of or even dreaming. And there are actually people that have tried that and they were successful. And one of them is the one you mentioned, is Adrian Owen, and he tried it in, 
in minimal consciousness patients. And uh, so these are patients that are completely unresponsive and um, you cannot communicate with them sometimes for months or years. But then he found out that he could decode some signals from the brain asking the patients to think of particular things. And he found a way of communicating with some of these patients. I mean, it doesn't always work. I mean, it works in, in a subset of patients, which I found amazing. He said, well, suddenly you have, I mean, it's, it's incredible in all aspects because you have a patient that is there laying in hospital and there's absolutely no contact with the outside world for years. And suddenly this guy comes with a brilliant idea start recording the brain of these patients and he found a way to communicate with them. The communication is very, very basic. It's very, I mean, it's not straightforward at all, but it's something. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a first, I mean, step to maybe try to, I mean, open a window to, to communicate back with this patient. So I think was, was, I mean, from the human perspective, I mean, forget about science for a second, from the human perspective is, is something amazing. And then there are many people that took this into into this idea into different directions. I mean, and we did experiments related to that with these neurons that I described. I mean, that, that I described before. We can actually predict what the patient is thinking about because we see the neurons firing, and we can tell whether the patient is thinking of this or of that or of that. And and then one step further is that some people they could even build models and they can reconstruct the thoughts of the patient. And um, Doris Sau, for example, did that in Caltech. She could reconstruct, actually, the pictures that monkeys were seeing. And for this, she was doing invasive recordings. And the reconstructions are amazing. So she gets the activity of, I don't know, more than maybe 100, couple hundred neurons, no more. And from the activity of these neurons, she could kind of like draw an identikit of the face that the monkey was seeing. And if you see, I mean, it's, it's very, very... It's remarkably similar to the original picture of the face. So that, that I found striking. And um, Jack Gallant was doing the same in, in San Francisco. I think he's in Berkeley. Um, he was doing the same. He could he showed people videos and then got the fMRI signals, create a model of how the neurons or how the voxels of the brain react to the different videos, and then recorded the spontaneous activity of these voxels and was kind of like reconstructing the, the image. Actually, sorry, not the spontaneous activity. He was recording the activity of voxels while the patients, while the subjects, not patients, watched the videos and then he could reconstruct more or less the videos. It's not perfect. I mean, it's very draft, very raw reconstruction, but it's not just chance. And there was another guy in Japan called Kamitami that he could actually predict what the patients were dreaming about. And then he was waking them up and asking, and he was, I mean, in, in many cases, more than chance, he was right. So it, it, it went into many different interesting directions. And, and I like it because, I mean, that was science fiction for me. When I watched the movie, that was not done. I mean, and I, I was fascinated by, by the idea. That was one of my favorite movies when, actually, when I was a physics student, even before I got into neuroscience. And then some years later, I'm, I'm just reading papers doing more or less the same things. And funnily enough, the reconstructions that this guy, Jack Gallant, got from his models, how he reconstructed the images, look surprisingly similar to the images that Bim Bender used in his movie. Right, right. That's, that's great. 
So j- just lingering on the on the science of that for for a second, um, the the fMRI work with Adrian, but also going back and you mentioned this with um, Jim Haxby and the whole basically paradigm in in functional brain imaging and and in neuroscience in general of multivariate distributed pattern analysis. Um, so you as a um, I guess a, a single unit recording specialist, probably reasonable description. Tell me if you object. Um, how do you do you connect with that that line of research directly? Like, do you study mesoscopic pattern coding behavior? Do you have like a a sense of how that connects to the single unit responses? Do you feel like there's uh, information that you care about at that level or or really is it just not good enough not fine enough sharp enough a tool for the kind of things that you're looking for well there's no magic bullet no i mean i'm i'm just a single unit recording guy because this is what i have access i mean i i I just do recordings in patients that are implanted with intercranial electrodes for clinical reasons and then I have like a very unique opportunity to record from not for one single neuron, from multiple single neurons simultaneously in a human subject that is telling me about his or her memories. I mean, that is watching pictures or videos or, 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 or whatever. So it's for me, it's a very unique opportunity and that's what I have access to. And, and that's what I'm doing now. That's very unique. So not everybody have access to that. Maybe if I wouldn't have access to that, I would be doing also EEG or fMRI. Now, um, what fMRI gives you is a more broad picture of what the brain is doing and more common activation. So to get a voxel activation, you need many neurons doing something conjointly. I mean, doing more or less the same thing or not the same thing, but being co-activated. Otherwise, you will never see an activation at the voxel level. Is that if you have a stadium full of people and to hear something, you need all of them to screen at the same time if you are far away from the stadium, like when there's a goal, when somebody scores a goal, you will clearly hear the roar of, of, of the whole stadium going goal. Um, but if everybody in the stadium is having their own chats and they're not synchronized, if you are far from the stadium, you will hear nothing. And this is what happens. And, and this is the advantage we have compared to these studies, is the fact that we can record the single conversations in the stadium. So we can hear single people talking. Now, we cannot cover what is going on in the whole stadium as when you are recording with fMRI, but we can cover what, what is happening with individual discussions that you don't hear if you are just hearing only to the roar of the crowd, which is what you can do with fMRI. So... I think the comparison is, is that we have access to some phenomena, some mechanism that sometimes you do not see at the mesoscopic level, at the fMRI level or the EEG level. Because if you have single neurons that are doing specific things and then the next neurons are doing something different, no chance you will see this with EEG or no chance you will see with the fMRI. And this is exactly what we find. And that's why you don't see this type of neurons that we describe at the fMRI level. Right, right. So I, I'll I'll shift us towards the end and and start kind of wrapping up the discussion because I know you need to take off fairly soon. The final the final chapter in the book is uh, referencing two two films, Open Your Eyes and Vanilla Sky, and is talking about immortality and um, think, new ideas in that space. But actually, I want I want to take one step back and 
and dwell on chapter nine to to wrap up, which is uh, the film you're referencing is Total Recall, and the subtitle for that chapter is Memory Manipulation and Memory Implantation. Um, and these are these are areas where there are a number of different a number of interesting connections to scientific developments that have come through in the last few years. So could you elaborate on what's going on there? Oh, a lot. I mean, um, memory construction, I think our data, I mean, is saying a lot because we are finding, we're recording in a memory area in humans, we're recording single neurons, and we are starting to find out what is the basics of, at the neural level for forming memories or for recalling memories. So we start to understand what is happening. But there's still a long way to go. I mean, we haven't answered all the questions, but I think we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg. So I think we're starting to get a grasp, a grasp of, of how things work, particularly in humans, which, by the way, might be a very different process compared to other animals. Now, but um, in the last years, there have been spectacular, I mean, studies published in the in the best journals and the, the ones that I describe as, as like the most science fiction like uh, are the ones of the group of Tonegawa in, in MIT. And he has a series of, of results with, I mean, doing optogenetic stimulation in mice that are, for me, they are science fiction. I mean, if somebody will, if I wouldn't know the papers, and somebody tells me the story, I will say that it's science fiction, but it's actually proper science. And he published it in science and he published it in nature and, and very high profile journals. And basically it's the idea of stimulating neurons in memory areas and hippocampal formation, for example, and by stimulating in a specific way, creating memories and actually creating false memories, making the mouse believe something that actually never happened. And I found this amazing. And this is like I don't know, it's, it's a very nice way of showing how you can control behavior by, by the activity of neurons and by manipulating the activity of neurons. That's, that, that's actually that. That's memory manipulation. And yeah, it has been done. Superb, superb. So I, I, will, I will lead us towards concluding now. And the, the, the final concluding remark, just moving on from the specific book chapters, was... Um, again, a thought that I had reading through, and I was wondering if this was something that you had in mind or if the, anyone else had um, brought this up yet, was that the, the, the book actually w looks like a fantastic basis for like a year's book club plus film club um, activity, you know, so meet, um, meet once a month, read, uh, read a chapter uh, and, and watch the book, watch the film. And then have a have a discussion over a over a drink or something like that. Is that something that has been pitched to you yet by by your students or something like that? No, I hope somebody will pick up your idea. I think it's it's a wonderful idea. The only thing I have is a friend of mine, uh, Doris Sao. She's a professor at Caltech, and she read the book, and then she told me actually, you I mean, this brought the idea, which is exactly what you described. Not not going through my chapters. But to say, oh, I would love that. I mean, having a new a course where we show a film and we read a paper and then we discuss. So trying to mix literature with, uh, well, science fiction, if you want, or arts with science. And I would love, I mean, I would love to do that. And I would love somebody to organize that and 
somehow to, to help or to be involved. Or maybe if they want to take this book as, as a guide to have like 10 movies, 10, 10 discussions, 10 neuroscience discussions, that would be amazing. I, I mean, I would be so happy. I mean, if this is the outcome of, of, of this book. And in general, I mean, since many years, since I wrote my first like general public book, which is Borges and Memory, is linking the writings of Jorge Luis Borges, who was a, maybe the best writer from Argentina ever, with research in memory. I mean, I always feel that we scientists, somehow we should get out of our comfort zone, out of the box, out of the lab and look around because there's a lot of clever ideas going on outside our field. I mean, I don't mean like outside neuroscience, outside science at all. So if you start reading what some people wrote, novels, fiction, science fiction, philosophy, what artists do, some artists do maybe with just with one painting or with one movie or whatever. I mean, this can really bring our science, I mean, to the next level. So I love that. I mean, I that would be amazing. I mean, if somebody will take out this idea of, of having maybe a film club together with a scientific discussion club, that that would be the best possible outcome of, of this book. Yeah, I, I, I think that that could really catch on. Mm-hmm. We'll agree. see. You, you heard it here first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it becomes a phenomenon, I'll uh, yeah. take a small slice of the credit. So, uh, Rodrigo, it's been a fantastic discussion. I just want to finish up by giving you the opportunity, if you, if you can give any uh, preferred means by which people can find out about your work or get in touch, if you have a website or a Twitter handle, um, or something you'd like to uh, tell people how to get in touch with you? I, I mean, I'm not good for, I mean, if you, if you know my first book, I mean, it's called Borges and Memory. And basically I was making the point that, I mean, we should try to be offline more often. We need more time to think and so on. So I don't have Twitter. I don't have any of these things. I don't have a cell phone. I don't use a cell phone. Um, but it's easy to find me. If you Google my name, I mean, you may not reach me easily, but you will go into our center's webpage and then you can see what we do and, 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 and this and that. So we try, I mean, I have a very good center manager and she tried to keep this up to date. So there's, there's always a lot of information of new things we're publishing or, I mean, things, things we're doing. So it's, it's easy to find out, I mean, about our stuff. But I'm not, I'm not a 21st century guy. I'm still like in the old age. I mean, reading and having my coffee and try to be disconnected from uh, the, the social media and this type of things. Well, that, that sounds serene, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and not, not a terrible idea at all. Well, Rodrigo, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Pleasure talking to you too. 